0: Our Father, we're thankful that we have the so great salvation that has been given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask tonight that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the great issues surrounding his death, that we may peer uh, ever more deeply into the work on the cross and how that is the um, cornerstone and the keystone of your plan of salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen tonight we're going to um, hopefully finish this uh, appendix, even the p- parts that we handed out because the parts we handed out really don't involve any scripture reading. Um, so we can move on to the next uh, next event in Christ's life and finish that this year uh, this spring and that is the resurrection. Um, so we've gone through the birth, the life and we've before the holidays we got into the death of Christ. And tonight we're going to deal with some of the issues that came out of that. Um, If you'll turn to the appendix, um, we'll we'll look. I want to take you through the history of this, and it's not easy material. And uh, there's a lot of disagreement about this, and there's (laughs) there's um, quite a bit of. of debate in church history, but it does involve significant um, items, significant points about church history that explain um, things about uh, various denominations and so on that you know today. And I think as Christians, we need to be aware of what has gone on in the past. We're not the first generation of Christians ever to walk the planet. And therefore, we probably don't, uh, aren't the first ones to raise a lot of these questions. Um, again, I, I, I introduce this by saying that church history is a study unto itself. That's a whole nother whole field by itself. But the benefits of studying church history are that as the Holy Spirit has led the church in the day of Pentecost up to the present time, He has evidently forced the church to to deal with one doctrine after another. And it's always been, um, if you can think of the picture of the flock of sheep, um, the sheep don't appreciate the shepherd until the wolves bite their flanks. And the church has apparently uh, has a propensity, we all do, uh, to learn things the hard way. And in the history of the church, that's the way it's happened. Uh, I can't think of one doctrinal advance ever made in church history that was made because people sought it. It was always made because heretics came into the church and nearly wrecked it. And then People, oh, gee, you know, we've got to get this straight here. And then after that, then the doctrine settled out and got debated and got based scripturally, and then everybody moved on to the next crisis. Forgot all about everything, and then a whole new set of heretics come in, tear the place up. We go, hmm, maybe we ought to do something about this. And that's how the church has grown. Very unflattering, by the way for, for all, every believer. But, I mean, hey, you know, that's a corporate view of us individually. So, as we go on through this particular debate, uh, I prefaced it last night by saying that uh, chronologically, the problem of the atonement really came in, into Protestantism. And that's because in, in Catholicism, you never really had a clarification of the potency of the cross as a total salvation package. Even to this day, um, in, in a Roman Catholic culture, um, if you say that you're saved and you dare claim that you know you're saved, you're going to get some pretty interesting glances because they do not believe in actual practice that it's a question that you can know for sure. Uh, there's not Assurance is not coupled with faith in, in, inside the Roman culture. Um, and it's not to slight, you know, I mean, hey, I'm not Bob Jones, okay? Um, I could comment on that and will, by the way, before the evening's over, because we will get into what fundamentalism is all about. Very interesting debate about Bob Jones. If you anything about Bob Jones' family, you'll know that they could care less what anybody thinks. They're going to do their own thing, period. As one lady talked to me last night, who has a son down there in her junior junior year, uh, they were going to get rid of the dating rule. You know, they couldn't interracially date. So Bob Jones thought because everybody's making a fuss of it, he'll extend it five more years. So that's how Bob Jones operates. Um, in other words, they're not people that are intimidated. Um, so we go on in church history into the extent of the atonement and. Date wise, here is a timeline, and we come to the 1500s with the Protestant Reformation. And this was a major point. Now, it's not, I mean, the average Roman Catholic, the average Protestant today doesn't even know the Reformation existed. Um, but it was a very traumatic time in church history. A lot of things happened here. You had. Uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, in its behalf, you had godly people, born-again Christians. The problem was that institutionally the uh, corruption had occurred so that things became so manifestly corrupted that something had to be done about it. So not only was there just corruption, but you had breakthroughs. New truths or biblical truths fell out of this this Protestant Reformation. And one of them, of course, was justification by faith. That the only way that man can be accepted with God to inherit the righteousness that Jesus Christ generated is by faith. And when that faith is exercised, that righteousness is credited completely and fully to that person's account, credit. That's justification by faith. And then after that, after that, because we're justified, now the motive from this point on... Here's the point of justification when somebody becomes a Christian. From that point on... The motive is one of thankful reflection upon what God has done for me. So, this results in a certain kind of motive, which is thankfulness. It also is grounded in a tremendous assurance. But that's missing in the Roman Catholicism of the Middle Ages, because First of all, there wasn't a motive for, th- there was thankfulness, I mean, Francis of Assisi was thankful, but not like this. This is an order of magnitude different. This is thankfulness for our so great salvation that I know. It's not, oh, thankful to God for pretty sky and pretty creation. M- medieval Roman Catholicism was thankful for that. But this was a different degree, a different magnitude of thankfulness and it became the ground motive for the Christian life. The Christian life wasn't seeking to become acceptable with God at the end. It wasn't seeking to acquire a merit. It was seeking to express a thankful walk because of what had happened in the past. So there were some fundamental changes that happened here. But because of this emphasis on justification, it turned out that the cross became very much central to the whole issue. And hence, after this, there became to be a, a tremendous emphasis on, well, what did Christ do? And on, on the appendix, what I'm trying to do there is show that, like with Christology, remember when we dealt with the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is true humanity, undiminished deity, united one person without confusion forever. And we can say that nice and glibly, but it took 450 years before we got there. Well, same here. We say Christ died for us. And we say that glibly. But what we want to do tonight is take you on the torturous pathway through all the argumentation that went on about what did Jesus do on the cross, can you come to a known non-Christian and legitimately say Christ died for you? Can you do that? And a good segment of Protestantism to this day does not believe that. That it was not right to say to a non-Christian that Christ died for you. No right to say that because you're not sure that Christ did die for that person. As this is fundamental. And this is what's wrapped up in this extent of the atonement. It's to what extent does the atonement apply? And as with all these great debates in church history, you can learn to co- come to Scripture. I mean, this, the end product isn't just to learn church history. The end product is to appreciate the depths of the Word of God And better minds than us have knocked heads over this issue. And we can learn a lot by listening to their dialogue. Because they have raised deep questions. And when we capture the essence of these questions, we go back now. We open our Bibles and say, yeah, I never thought of that question. Let's see what the text says. That's the proper response to church history. From church history, we learn the questions that we use back in our Bible study. So, one of the questions uh, concerns the area on pages one and two. I've dealt with four areas of Bible doctrine that are involved with this issue. One was, they all came up together kind of, election, justification, the nature of faith, and sanctification. Now, I don't want to mislead you. I'm not saying that the atonement issue was the sole factor in all these. All the issues were going on. It's just that I'm using the cross here and the death of Christ as a foil to bring all this stuff in right now. Um, if you look under the doctrine of election and justification, faith, and sanctification. Just look at some of the questions. What I've tried to do is paraphrase the questions that believers were debating under the doctrine of election. uh, If then God intended, notice the verb. This is, if you're kind of not afraid to mark up your notes, uh, circle the verb intend. Because it turned out, in a lot of the discussions, is that we really weren't clear when we asked the question about what we meant by the question. Uh, The question is, if God intended to save all men by having His Son die for their sins, but in the end all are not saved, what does this fact do to our view of His sovereignty? If God intended to save all men and all men aren't saved, Doesn't that imply that there's a force other than God, outside of God, that's somehow thwarting his sovereignty? And that's the issue raised in the Reformation, in the second and third generations. Um, Another question. Are his intentions, if you don't believe that, then in conflict with his sovereign choice? How can God remain sovereign... If man's decisions to accept or reject the cross in the end control the extent of the atonement. You see what they're getting at? Who's finally controlling this thing? If we say that he elected upon the basis of foreknowledge of men's response to the cross, isn't this saying the same thing? That men initiate the action and God seconds it. Suppose we take the other approach and postulate the atonement is limited to only the elect. Then the preaching of the cross to those who reject to the non-elect cannot be a valid call. As a strong Reformed theology professor uh, acquaintance of mine once said, if I, this, is, this is by a well-known exegete of the scriptures, by the way, this guy. And here's what he actually said. I got it in his nose. If I knew who the non-elect were, I wouldn't bother to preach to them. Obviously, the extent of the atonement is closely linked to the truths of election. Okay, let's go to justification. Interesting questions that were raised. If justification is somehow based upon the atonement, and it is not sufficient to remove all my sin when I initially believe in Christ, isn't the atonement in some fashion limited in my life? In other words, if I have to confess my sins in order to be forgiven, Isn't that an added action that happens? Is that added action not included in the original atonement? These were the questions that were being raised. If we die, here's a good one, if we die physically after being justified, aren't we still under the Edenic death sentence for sin? In other words, how does justification work when it doesn't remove the sentence of death on my body? Interesting question. See, these weren't lightheartedly raised questions. If we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ in the future, aren't we still in some way identified with sin? If the atonement is thus limited in those who believe and apparently only partially effective, how can we ever be sure we're wholly justified before God? This is a whole segment of people that raised this question. Now, the doctrine of faith. If the atonement is limited in saving for the elect, what role does faith play in appropriating salvation? Is it necessary? Or, from our human perspective, how do we know that we are of the elect? If false faith of mere professing Christians exists, how is genuine faith to be distinguished from the false faith? If, to answer this question, I must ponder my faithfulness, then what role does the cross play as an object of faith? On the other hand, if the atonement is unlimited but ineffective without faith, then isn't faith again the center of action around the cross? In this case, doesn't faith somehow become a meritorious good work to be added to the cross to make the cross effective? And finally, in the doctrine of sanctification, are post-salvation sins covered in the atonement? or is it limited in this respect? If the benefits of the atonement must be appropriated by faith, what happens when the faith fails? Do these benefits fluctuate with the ups and downs in the Christian life? If, however, the atonement is not so limited, why must we forgive in order to be forgiven, confess our sins, repent, and be disciplined when we sin? All these were issues that were raised. So you see these guys, I mean, you know, there's a whole slug of stuff here. and. Today, 300, 400, 500 years later, 450 years later, we we've answered some of these questions because of more and more Bible study, and, and finally we see our way clear in some of these things. But they didn't. I mean, they were. This is new stuff here. They were coming out of all this. So that's the, that's the background. Now, if you turn to page three, there are some preliminary considerations. And, as I say, uh, bear with me tonight. I'll only do it tonight, so we'll get back maybe for some of you more interesting things next week. But um, this, as I said, this is tough material, and there's some considerations that I want you to be aware of. And even if you don't grab and follow all these, just grab the idea that before you go into these discussions, you've got to think through the old question that we raised. When you ask a question, you are already taking a position. Most of the time you can't avoid that. But what you can avoid is being ignorant that you're doing that. So when you think about these questions, remember that the questions themselves contain baggage. And just accept that, and that's the fact of life and conversation. So when questions arise, don't answer them too fast. Answer them reflectively, thinking about what does the question bring into, onto the table. And in particular, I want you to look at this. So if you'll just follow these three paragraphs. This is actually a review of stuff we covered back when we were dealing with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. With a satisfactory atonement alongside the obvious continuation of evil in history, the Protestant mentality centered upon the plan behind the atonement. A plan involves the choice of the planner. In this case, God's sovereignty came to the fore. See what they were trying to do? If you raise the question of what is the plan of salvation, if it's not Rome with indulgences, if it's not paying money to the Pope, if it's not going to Mother Church, if it's not crucifying Christ anew in the Mass, if it's not any of these things, then what is the plan of salvation? So when you start asking what is the plan, you come to the planner. And what was the planner's intention? What, did, what was he on his mind, you know? When we built this building, what was on our mind? Why we have the high ceiling? Does somebody want to play basketball? I haven't played basketball in here since we built the building. But that was the intention. That's why there's a crummy carpet on the floor. That carpet is to being bounced the ball on it. So that was the intention. That was the idea of the planner. Well, the Protestants began to think about, well, what did God have on his mind when he did all this? Because if we could find out what he had on his mind, we could define all this business of faith and trust in the Lord, and what did Jesus do on the cross and all that. So it went back and focused on the planner, which was great. And in this case, the sovereignty of God came to the fore. How is the sovereign attribute to be viewed? Do we think of it abstractly as a prime quality, cleansed from all historical connotation? In other words, do we think of this cause? Now, you know, Aristotle was great on the many different kinds of causes. So we have this big universal cause. And we're asking, is God's sovereignty a big universal cause? Now, did you hear what I just said? I already laid you down a trap. And this is what where Protestantism... Is God's sovereignty like that Aristotelian category of universal cause? Ooh. See what was happening? The guys had intellectual tools that they inherited through scholasticism and Aristotle and Plato and Greek philosophy. They picked up these ideas and began to manipulate Bible doctrine in the light of the tools that Aristotle and Aquinas had given to the church. Aristotle didn't give it to the church, but Aquinas brought in a lot of the tools. And some of them were great tools. It's just that they were unrefined and not subject to Scripture. And you remember that verse that we've looked at in this class several times, Colossians 2.8. Turn there a moment. Here's an example of how serious that verse is. because we're going to go through some agonizing church history, which I believe was what could have largely been avoided if people had understood what Paul wanted us to do here in Colossians 2.8. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Remember we dealt with that? Remember we said that the Greek word there, translated elementary principles, is the Greek word stoichia. And stoichia, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary and find out how it's used, it is used by the Greek philosophers to refer to earth, fire, water, air, all the basic categories. See what stoichia means? Basic categories. And Paul says, when you start to go in and you have these basic categories and you begin to frame scripture in the light of those basic categories, you've got a problem. Right now, you're taken captive by the tradition of men. Because our education is tradition. Very little of what you and I learn in school or class is original thought. Think about it. When you learned in biology, as an example, evolution. Did you do the experiments? Did you do Spellanzani's experiment with the maggots and the meat? Most of us didn't. We just read about it. Did we, ever, did we ever dig fossils and actually go out into a fossil field and find fossils when we were talking about fossils in biology? Or did we just read about it in a book and the teacher told us that? Tradition of men. And it's not that tradition is necessarily wrong. I mean, we have to learn by tradition. Training is largely tra- tradition. That's a method of teaching. Nothing wrong with that. But Paul says, when that's your basic, when that's your starting point, you've got a problem. And he says, instead of that, in verse 8, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, and he takes this word, Christos, Christos, and he pits that against Stoichia. Now, what do we know about Christos? We know that he is God and man. We know the hypostatic union. We know the creator-creature distinction. We know all of these things. We know that God is holy. He's love. He's immutable. He's eternal. He's omniscient, omnipresent. He has all these attributes. All this stuff, the essence of God, the creator-creature distinction, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of man over against God and in the Incarnation, all this is wrapped up in Christos that's where you start, Paul says. You don't start with Aristotle. You don't start with fire and earth. You start with the fundamental categories Scripture gives you. Scripture gives you. So, going back now to page 3 in the notes, the second paragraph, if we think of sovereignty as an abstract property or universal clarifica- uh, classification that belongs to both God and the creation, then we haven't broken with Aristotelian logic. In a simple sense, all I'm saying is this. In a, if you diagram what the philosophers try to do, is they try to come up to this point where they can classify everything and included underneath their categories is God, man, plus nature, and so forth. In other words, put God and man alongside of each other in this classification system. But the classification system is higher than them. It looks down and says God is this way, man is this way, and so forth. And what you've done, this is nothing more than the continuity of being. It's all one level of existence. There's no creator creature distinction. It's all erased. So if we think of sovereignty as an abstract property or universal classification that belongs to both God and the creation, then we haven't broken with Aristotelian logic. We are still enmeshed in the pagan idea of the continuity of being wherein both God and man are on the same level of existence. Immediately we find ourselves with an internal logical contradiction because two beings on the same level cannot have total sovereignty. And hence the tension between God's sovereignty and man's sovereignty and man's choice and God's choice, they, they become billiard balls banging against each other because they're in the same box down here. And the Bible says, you, you, wait a minute, there's two boxes. There's the creator and the creature. They're not the same. Man's choice is an altogether different kind of existence than God's sovereignty. They can't come into collision because they're structured not to. Man is but a finite replica of God. He has this thing called choice, a free will down here, and God has sovereignty up here. And choice is the finite analog to God's sovereignty. It's an analog. It's not on the same level. So it's ridiculous to think they can never be in conflict once you seriously come to grips with the creator-creature distinction. But that wasn't done, unfortunately. What had happened was the scholastic categories took over, these were the intellectual tools that these guys knew at the time, and they did their best, utilizing those tools. Now if you'll follow the debate, the interesting thing here about history, church history, in Luther and Calvin, notice the dates, dates of Calvin, anyway. And because most of this is not on the Lutheran side of the Reformation. Most of this happened in the, Reforma- uh, the, the Calvinist side of the Reformation. <clears throat> in Luther and Calvin, Calvin dating from 1509 to 1564, died a young man. By the way, his life was amazing. You know how old he was when he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion that was the textbook for Protestant theology for the last 500 years? 21. he didn't go to American public schools Calvin uh, there's little or no evidence of the limited atonement idea when you read Calvin and Luther you don't come across any idea of the atonement being limited even though reformed theologians keep to- talking to us about the limited atonement it's not in Calvin and Luther they didn't c- discuss that issue Their focus, that is Luther's focus and Calvin's focus, is upon Christ as the believer's Savior and, underline this one, source of assurance. Source of assurance. Namely, that Christ died for him, that is, for the believer. Wrote Calvin, follow this quote, this is a quote directly from Calvin now, And at the end of the notes, you'll see the reference. If we have been chosen in him, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves. Let me read that sentence very slowly again the second time. Because subsequent Reformed theologians don't believe that, and they rejected that. So let's get it straight from what Calvin originally taught. If we have been chosen in Him, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves. Christ Himself is the mirror wherein we must contemplate our election. In other words, what Calvin was saying is, how do I know I'm accepted with God? Because I look at Jesus Christ. It's the same thing Luther discovered. I'm looking at Christ. I'm not looking here. I'm not looking at all my warts. I'm not looking at my personal sins. I'm not measuring how good I'm rating. I'm not doing a fruit inspection of my life. I'm looking at Him. I'm acceptable before God because of Him. Luther and Calvin looked up, not in. Two different prepositions. Up and out rather than down and in totally different ways. And the first guys out of the, of the block in the Protestant Reformation weren't looking in. They were looking outwardly because they knew they were sinners. They knew they never could have enough evidence in their heart to convince them that they were saved. They all knew that Jesus Christ paid for the sins and that therefore He was their Savior. And their assurance was that. Thus, each person at the point of saving faith knows without doubt that Christ died for him or her. That is fundamental. Underline that. That's fundamental. That's what saving faith is, according to the first generation out. Faith, in other words, to Calvin and to Luther, faith is assurance. You don't seek to be assured that you really believed. You believe because you're assured you're saved. What does Hebrews say? Faith is what? The evidence, the assurance of things hoped for. That was the magic power. And I want I, I want to emphasize that because that was what created a problem for the Protestants. This is where the Protestants drew like a lightning rod, the attack of Rome. Rome came in on the Protestants and the new small Protestant movement like crazy over this point. We'll show you how. The elect are those creatures who come to this faith in post-fall history. However God in eternity past viewed his plan, he viewed it as involving real history in which there was a fall. Following Calvin now, a number of reformists such as Theodore Beza, notice his dates, very close to Calvin, entertained an abstract approach to God's sovereignty. Here we go. Now, now these guys, the heat's off a little bit and they're, they're trying to systematize the Reformation. He entertained an abstract approach to God's sovereignty that led to the of limited atonement doctrine. Their reasoning was simple. God, from all eternity, had a plan expressed in his eternal decrees. Since only the elect are saved, it must be that the atonement was designed only for them. In essence, their argument was a straightforward reasoning from effect to cause. This approach, however, quickly affected faith and assurance. If Christ died only for the elect, then how can I know He died for me? I can't know that He died for me directly. That would require omniscience. So, my assurance must come from inspecting my fruit. The evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in my heart. Luther and Calvin had argued earlier that looking inwardly at my fallen nature only leads to anxiety so that one must look outwardly to the cross of Christ instead. The second generation reformers coming after Luther and Calvin, because of their system, had to look inwardly for assurance. Thus, the limited atonement doctrine effectively divorced faith and assurance. In the days of Luther and Calvin, faith was assurance that Christ died for me. In the later days of the Reformers, assurance could only follow and reinforce faith to show evidence of election and the coverage of my sin by the atonement. Assurance thus became for them faith in faith or persevering faith evidenced by the fruit in one's life. See what happened here? There's a shift here and it looks kind of vague and subtle, but it had very powerful implications. How many people here that Uh, uh, have heard of the Puritans, everybody heard the Puritans. What is your image of the Puritans? Very sober, um, very legalistic, so on and so forth. Some of that's a lot of baloney. If we dared sing some of the hymns they sang in their wedding service, it would be rated R. But the point is that the and the Puritans, by the way, were brilliant. They were excellent soldiers. In fact, there was one English non-Christian historian who said, "You know, we can laugh at the Puritans, the way they the way they whine with their silly little music, because they didn't have they got rid of all the, the the accompaniment and so on. A lot of them was acapella and so forth." And he says, um, "You know, we we laugh at at their at their." drawn faces, their seriousness, uh, the way they dress, etc., etc., etc. But he says, you know what? If you ever meet a Puritan on the, on the battlefield or in the hall of debate, you stop your laughing. They were tough people. And the reason they're so maligned, a lot of times, they're so maligned is because little people always have to chew down big people just like dogs. You know, the yip-yap dogs, they're always the little ones, not the big ones. Big dog doesn't have to yip-yap. It's always the little ones that yip-yap. And that's the same problem in history. It's always some little yip-yap college professor that barely got his PhD, who is knocking people like George Washington and other people, the, the great people of history. It's always the same way. Now, in church history, the problem the Puritans had, and they had some problems, was they didn't reproduce themselves very well. By the second, third generation, there was no evangelism. There was no winning of the next generation to Christ. Something wrong here. Puritans were fine in some areas, but they had some failings. Why weren't they able to produ- reproduce their society? Why did it go, after one or two generations, boom, disappeared. What happened? So there was something defective. Well, now you go back and you read Puritan authors, I don't know how many people have read Owens and some of the the Puritan writers. You can find books that thick, written by those Puritans, that talk about godliness and whether I'm saved. Whether I'm saved. Because they conducted an inspection campaign all their life to try to detect the operation of saving faith in their heart. It's a morbid thing. In fact, there's, a, there's a, a term that scholars use for those books. It's called conversion morphology. Conversion morphology. It's the form of conversion, the form that conversion takes. And are you really saved? Am I really saved? Well, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I've got to see this. And one of the great economists of history pointed out that a fruitful result of this unfruitful theology was the Industrial Revolution. Now you say, what did the Industrial Revolution have to do with the Puritans? The Industrial Revolution couldn't happen without capital money, because the Industrial Revolution had to invest in machines. So where did the money come, do you suppose, that was saved stored up and invested to finance the Industrial Revolution. Weber's book on economics traces it back to a Puritan belief that a sign of your election was that you would be economically blessed. And they worked hard. And that work ethic that you heard about that's so fundamental, and or was fundamental in our country, the work ethic Actually, in some cases, can be shown to have grown out of this Puritan morbid introspection that I've got to work hard to to give God a chance to show that I'm the elect by blessing me. It was connected to this. There's lots of historical ramifications. This. this is not some little theological point in a closet somewhere. This spilled out. It affected the economy of Europe. It affected us as a country, and so on. But one of the problems in Puritanism was the fact that here's, here's Mr. Christian, but he's not quite sure that he's a Christian because he's heard all this story about election and predestination and he's not sure he's part of the elect because, he says, and this was the, this is one of the problems that Calvin had, he said it's possible for there to be pretence pretentious believers that is believers who have a false faith and then the false faith just dissipates finally and that proves the person never had the true faith to start with and the problem is that if this person became a Christian at age 7 and he dies at 77 and he's got 70 years of Christian life how does he know whether he's a saint or not? until he gets to his 77th year and drops dead believing. You see what happens here? If you don't have assurance at the beginning, you can't have assurance at any other point. There's always the danger that you're going to fall away. And so the problem of the falling away, and it was built on an exegesis actually of the book of Hebrews, This problem of falling away began to act subtly to separate faith and assurance. Or whatever this faith was, unassuring faith, doesn't sound right. But that plagued the Puritans. That was their dilemma. They weren't really sure that they were of the elect unless it was so manifestly obvious of the Holy Spirit's works in their life. So there began to be this emphasis of splitting away of faith and salvation. Now, after the limited atonement became dominant in Reformed circles, because it now is widely considered by the, by the first hundred years of the present Reformation in Reformed circles, that Christ died only for the elect, didn't die for the non-elect. So, if that's so, now keep in mind what I warned you about, I'm leading you down a path here. Remember I said? When someone asks you a question, they bring baggage to the table. So just be cautious. Soon after limited atonement had become dominant in reform circles, one of the reformers, Jacob Arminius, rejected limited atonement. And he taught, quote, that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross, redemption and the forgiveness of sin, yet that no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer, according to the word of the gospel in John 3.16, God so loved the world. And in the first epistle of John 2.2, uh, uh, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Remember I told you, 1 John 2.2. 2, played a role. Here it is. I'm quoting right from the creed. This was Arminius's own position. The unlimited atonement, according to Arminius, is for all men potentially, but not actually. What makes it actually apply to me is my act of faith. God chose the elect in this view upon the basis of foreseen, persevering faith. And let me read that again. Arminius was a Reformed student of the Reformers. He he was a solid Reformed guy. He was in Holland. And what he argued was, was that the cross of Christ applied for all. It's like a big package here. And you come up and you claim your piece of it by your faith. Oh, and by the way, he added, you better keep believing it. Because you don't keep believing it you lose it. And that's where loss of salvation arose. The idea that you could lose your salvation. And that's why we call that Arminianism as distinguished from Calvinism. Because the package, your claim on this package was contingent, contingent upon your faith. Arminius then added that one could lose this faith, in which case it would be shown that he did not have true persevering faith, and if he didn't have the true persevering faith, he was never of the elect. Do you notice something similar about Arminius and Calvin, second generation reformers now? What are they both saying? That the Christian, a genuine Christian, can never fail. That every Christian, every true Christian, will have persevering faith. What do you do about Solomon? What do you do about the people in Corinth? What do you do about the failures in the New Testament? What do you do with that passage in Peter, denying the Lord that bought them? Uh Uh-oh, now we've got a problem. See, all this theological argument Just like it is today, the people that get involved in these theological controversies spend so much time getting involved in the theological controversy, they never study the text. What does the text say? Yoo-hoo! You know, text, what does the text say? So, Arminius, to his credit, at least he smelled something wrong. Because Arminius did try to do some exegesis. And he did look at 1 John 2:2, 2, 2, and he said something doesn't fit here. No matter what you guys are doing, you can't make the word "world" in 1 John 2:2 2, 2 be just the world world of the elect. That's not what the word, how John uses the word. So we got a we got a rat in the, in the house somewhere here. So Arminius, again, however, using the tools available to him intellectually, bound up with the idea of. of faith and so on. What he did is he opened the door then to what church theologians call the the Pelagianism, which is the belief in a strong will of man and that God cooperates so that the will of God and the will of man are kind of the same thing and they just are on the same team. Because they seem to depose. So it was a Calvinist reaction to Arminius. This thing ripped up Europe. Right? People say, oh, see how the Christians fight? See, you know, no peace in the church. Well, at least they were talking about something with five syllable words in it. At least they were debating about something worth debating it's eternal salvation. No. I mean, the, today, the people, it's just shallow and boring compared to this stuff. Arminius's teachings are rejected because they seem to depose God from his sovereignty and replace him with man's choice. At the Synod of Dort in 1619, it was stated over against Arminius. Now here's, see, now what's what's happening to the church now? People are hardening their positions. No, no third way now. Everybody's in one camp or the other, gonna harden up, throw rocks at each other now build thicker castle walls. So, by 1619, Dort said this, It was by the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation. That He should confer upon them faith, which, by the way, that's another thing that comes up now. Faith becomes a gift possible only through God. That he should offer them faith, which together with all other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them with his death. Now, look at the logic in that sentence. It's very carefully structured. These guys were the could make our lawyers look sick. Look at the grammar in that sentence and how carefully it's in it. What do you notice it says? He should confer upon them faith, and then there's a whole set of clauses that describe this faith thing. And it's called a saving gift of the Holy Spirit, which is fine. And what does it say about those gifts? They were purchased for them by Christ's death. What is purchased for them by Christ's death? Faith. Well, then how can the non-elect believe? If the non-elect never had faith purchased for them, were they ever offered salvation? That's the problem Arminius saw. So now you have these two camps in the church. Historically, they come down today, although they're blurred today in most churches today because nobody knows what their own church believes, leave alone what somebody else believes. But Arminianism and Calvinism come down in church history like this. Calvinism dominates the Presbyterian circles, largely Presbyterian and congregational circles. Tend historically to inherit the Calvinist way of thinking. Of course, liberalism has come in and wiped out most of the theology. So again, I say this is the history, this is the genealogy, but it doesn't apply. You could walk into a Presbyterian church and they wouldn't know what you're talking about. You talk about Calvin, even some of them. So things have deteriorated in our time. But this is the lineage: Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. Arminianism came down through John Wesley into the Methodist Church. And out of the Methodist Church at the turn of the century came the Pentecostals. And out of this movement came your Charismatics. And this begins to explain some of these divisions we see. Now, completely independent of this, the Lutherans are sitting over here. They've had their own relatively unscathed history, from all this controversy, you have the Episcopalian Church that, like the Lutheran Church, tried to preserve a lot of the rituals of the Catholic Church. And the Lutherans and the Episcopalians had their own lineage, except the the Episcopalians... Uh, the king of England decided he needed some theology teachers, so he sent down to Geneva, and he brought some Reformed people into the Episcopalian church. So, this is the, these are the ebbs and the flows. Now, as I say, don't go out and say that th- this is true today, because it isn't necessarily true today, because nobody knows what they believe. They go to the church with the biggest basketball game, or largest youth group or something. But... In originally you could see the lines of this theology. That you could go to these kinds of churches, and if you listen carefully to the men in those churches that do know their own denominational teachings, you will hear Jacob Arminius. You will hear, you better watch out, Christian. You lose your salvation. You come over here, and you can hear those second-generation reformers saying, are you really of the elect? Are you really a believer? Examine your heart, and so forth, and so forth. So those are the two, two, two cult- cultural streams that have come down to us in our own time. All right, now let's go on to page five. That wasn't the end of the controversy by any order. All calvinists were not happy with the Dort statement against arminianism. They were troubled by the text that Arminius had used which did emphasize the atonement's application to all men and we've been over those. One of those was Moshe Amora, 1596 to 1664, who taught theology in France. Although his teachings were called heretical in Holland, they were accepted by calvinists in France. His position was God wills all men to be saved on condition they believe a condition in which they could well fulfill in the abstract but in fact owing to inherited corruption they stubbornly reject so that this universal will for salvation actually saves no one and he goes on and develops it this was the source uh, by the way of what we call four point Calvinism five point Calvinism is this seen this before tulip tea anybody know what these are? T, total depravity. U, unlimited or unconditional election. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints see, you can go and press your Reformed friends now, right? Now you can go say, see, I, yeah, I know what tulip means. It's not grown in the garden in the spring, it's something else. What Amaret did is he questioned this L in here. And hence it arose as a label that you sometimes hear people talk about, five-point Calvinism and four-point Calvinism. That's where it started, right there. In the centuries since the Reformation, Protestantism had been divided over the issue until modern liberalism destroyed Orthodoxy in most denominations. Arminianism prevailed in Methodist and Pentecostal circles while Calvinism in Presbyterian and Reformed circles. Since present-day Bible fundamentalism is largely dispensational, which originated in the Calvinist camp in a broad sense, it tends to follow a mild version of Calvinism. And that's... uh, You can't predict what you run into, but generally speaking, that's what happens. Now, a discussion. I've already given you basically much of the discussion. I attribute this to a failure of the Reformation to really mine the depths of Scripture on this creative creature distinction. And now we come on page 6 to a very interesting quote. Remember I said that the result of all this was that the later Reformers consciously rebelled against Calvin. Why did they do so? The later reformers began to alter Luther's and Calvin's teachings on faith. Catholicism counterattacked the original teaching of Luther and Calvin, namely that faith was assurance. Why do you think? The, how do you think the Catholics attacked? Think about this for a minute. It's very easy to see. You are a Catholic theologian. You want to stop this Protestant movement. You want to nail it before it gets started. What can you do? to appeal to the most godly element in the church, that these people are heretics. You can't talk about the reforms, you don't discuss that because the godly people in the church would agree with the Protestants. Yeah, throw the money out, throw the corrupt guys out. So that wasn't the tactic. The tactic was to come around and sign and say, you know, we we really love the Lord, and and you know this Protestant doctrine of, of assurance of salvation? Well, if you really believe that you're saved, you can go out and raise hell. It would lead to loose licentious living. That was the attack. A brilliant stroke. They argued that assurance would not lead to loose living. So now the Protestants, instead of thinking it back through, going back to the Scriptures, now they're reeling politically from this assault. They go like this, and they say, what are we going to do about this? So, their answer was to say, you know, we got to build safeguards to this justification doctrine now. we we got to kind of cool things down here a little bit. So, watch what they did. Catholicism counter-attacked the original teaching of Luther and Calvin that faith was assurance as an incentive to loose living. To defend Protestantism, the later Reformers began to argue that we cannot be assured that we have believed unto salvation unless there are evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Now, nobody's denying there's evidences of the saving faith in life. But the argument was that you didn't have assurance until you saw those evidences. That's the argument. The famous Civil War era, one of the great Reformed theologians in the South... Andrew Jackson's theological mentor was Robert Dabney who taught in Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Great Southern gentleman pointed out that the civil uh, pointed out that later reformers had separated faith and assurance. Here's Dabney's own quote as a, as a student of the he was in the reform tradition, and here's what he said. The first reformers defined saving faith as a belief that Christ saved me, making the assurance of hope of its necessary essence. Now, the later reformers and those learned, holy, and modest teachers of the reformed churches have subjected this view to searching ex- uh, examination and rejected it as the Westminster Assembly on scriptural grounds. Christ, in this view, died only for the elect, and neither you nor I can be sure we have the elect company until we can experientially prove out in our lives that we have persevering faith." Now, here you have a guy it. There was a shift from Calvin and Luther to the next generation. And the shift was caused as a political response, theological response, political response, to the forces of Rome that wanted to brand Protestantism as a dangerous gospel that gave too much power, it gave too much privilege to the individual person, and it could be misused. Reminds you of the gun control lobby. Hey, Got to watch out now. Those guns all by themselves go out and shoot people. Same thing. Don't trust somebody with something. Because they might misuse it. It's always the, the totalitarians always think this way. Don't ever empower anybody to do anything. Because you might lose control of them when you do that. That's dangerous stuff to do that. And so... People were held just as they were held by the indulgences in Rome. Now they're held with a threat that if you don't, if you have failure in your Christian life, you're not a Christian. And it was felt that this threatening atmosphere was necessary to discipline the church to live righteously. Now the scriptures do threaten. The question is do the scriptures threaten loss of salvation or do the scriptures threaten discipline? upon God's children. Spanking of those in his family. Not an abolition of the family unit, but a severe form of discipline. Every communion service, we read 1 Corinthians 11. And I'll bet you there isn't three people in ten that listen to 1 Corinthians 11 when it's read. Remember, one of the, what, is, what is one of the things that's threatened? Every time we take communion here, we're threatened with physical death. Now what's those threats for? To keep the church in line. But those threats don't undermine assurance of your saving faith. They are appealing to it because you are saved, because you are in God's family. And in fact, Hebrews says what? It says that if you don't get chastised when you sin, you're a bastard. You're not even in the family. So the appeal and the warning passage of Scripture is precisely because we're in the family of God with a Holy Father. And He's not going to let us get away with loose living. He's going to, he's going to take His action. But the action He takes isn't saying, Ha, ha, I'm going, to hold, I'm going to hold your salvation hostage. That's not the way it operates in the New Testament. So, here's the problem. That all happened. And the, the limited atonement fell in the middle of the whole thing because... Is the, uh, does the atonement cover these things, or doesn't it? If I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? I am forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future? Yeah. If I'm not forgiven of my sins for future, then doesn't that imply that I can lose my salvation. Got to be reforgiven every time I that's not that. Does it mean that I can get away in my father's house with whatever I want to do? No, it doesn't. He's got a big stick. He can take care of things. So, there's two levels that we now see, you know, we can say, you know, if we were only there in the Reformation, we would have straightened them all out, of course. But we're three or four hundred years later, and we begin to see, oh yeah, there's two parts of this thing. There's entering the kingdom at the point of regeneration and joining the family of God, and then there's internal to that family a disciplinary procedure. Oh, now we, we can deal with the warning passages of Scripture. So, in a nutshell, we've gone through this, this argument, and I uh, we we haven't um, got into some of the uh, just a few of the things in page six and seven, or run out of time. Um, Next week we'll clean that up and move on to the uh, resurrection and some of the passages, which will be appropriate as Easter comes up. Father, thank you for your patience with the church as we go down century after century learning your truths the hard way. I'm sure it vexes your heart to see us learn things this way. But nevertheless under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit we do learn the lessons finally and we thank you that you have taught us these things that we may know you ever more perfectly in Jesus name amen Okay Well don't uh, don't be discouraged if uh, parts of this are very challenging. Um, It's a classic example that you can come... you can literally believe two sentences that on the surface look totally contradictory, but because you load the words in one sentence with one set of meanings, and load the words in the other sentence with other sets of meanings, you can literally believe the two sides. In one sense, the atonement is limited. Because in eternity, what happens? People wind up in hell. But but see, the thing is that the people who wind up in hell wind up there now because of another reason. Originally, if Christ had not died, it would be, I am in hell because I am part of a human race and I have sinned. A fallen human race, and I have sinned because of my sins. But on another on another level now, with Christ having died, I not only I have I wound up in hell unnecessarily because the whole you know, I didn't have to be here. I mean, I had a quote a second chance, if you can express it that way, because Christ died for me. He died to to handle the holy righteous sentence of God upon me. That could have been avoided. And I'm here because I reject it. I, I basically thumbed my nose at God again and turned away from the pardon that he offered me. It was a genuine pardon that was offered. So there's some fundamental truths here and uh, next week we, we point out those same four things that we did in the, in the fourth chapter. Because what we're struggling with here is we want to preserve the pieces of truth we know from scripture even though we can't formulate it in a nice coherent logical system this is a classic instance where the scriptures defy you to create a 100% logical structure it's not that it's contradictory it's that you can't get the pieces together it's it's not the case imagine a jigsaw puzzle on your, your living room table It's not the case that that you've got all the pieces here and they don't fit. It's rather the case that you don't have all the pieces. So no matter how you do it, there would be pieces in that puzzle that you really don't know how they work, but they're legitimate. They're part of the puzzle. It's just you don't have enough of the pieces together to see how it fits. That's different from saying this piece doesn't belong to the puzzle and it's logically contradictory. That's what I'm trying to say. And but isn't that in the end what we're confessing as creatures that we're not the creator and that he is ultimately incomprehensible and you can relax in that and you have to relax in that and the dilemma always is we're we're hurting and we have a trial a crisis in our lives we always want to know well now why did that happen and we get the answer so many times that Job got you just look at me Well, I know God. You're a great God. But I would still like to know what you had in mind with that. And he said, look at me. But I I know. I'm looking at you. But I still want to know. Look at me. And the answer keeps going back to that. And we've all had that experience, haven't we? We never get the answer. But yet, our hearts finally find peace. How do our hearts find peace finally? Because they come to a rest in the character of our God, not all the details in His mind. Because we don't know all the details in His mind. We just come to a rest. And we know, I, I'm satisfied, I have a deep enough confidence that God loves me, that He cares for me, and I just have to trust that character quality in our God. That in this hurt, and all the pain I'm facing, and all the trouble I have, that deep down underneath, it's it's okay. And that's that's what we all wind up with. And theologically, that's what we wind up with. Theology isn't any different from everyday Christian life. It's just that some theologians act like we act. And they want to ram it and cram it, and I want an answer, and I want it now, and I want it published in 215 pages so I can get it copyrighted. And it doesn't work that way. Well, I'm going to call a conference and we're going to have 55 theologians here and we're going to come out at the end of that meeting with a mutually agreed upon creed. Well, we can schedule it, but God isn't necessarily going to attend. And that's what's happened down through history. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I am not slighting those efforts to pull doctrine together and clarify issues. We need to do that, but there's a limit to what we can clarify. And we have to know that, too. So tonight was a classic case of a very, very difficult thing. There are some areas where the atonement is limited. But even this, you'll see, hopefully next year when we talk about the Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Church and so-called exchange life, that the cross doesn't deal with is limited and doesn't really um, nullify the things we inherit from Adam. That's why the Christian life starts all over in Christ. Because something new is started. We're a new creature in Christ. And so, yeah, we die. We still bear the Adanic curse. They're right. Atonement hasn't done away with the Adanic curse. What the Atonement has done is provide a transfer mode, a protocol of transfer. So I can transfer out of Adam and into Christ. That's what the atonement has accomplished. But it has not, it has not done away with the Edenic curse. We all tie. It substituted something neat, the resurrection of the saints in Christ Jesus. But it has not nullified that. And so in that sense, yeah, atonement limited. And ultimately, isn't the atonement limited to in its saving eternal benefits to just those who believe? We know that, right? So, in that sense, yeah, it's limited. The problem is how you say it. Remember when we were talking about, uh, was it last fall? Yeah, last fall? Was it last fall? We were talking about impeccability. Remember we had a discussion, I remember Debbie brought out the question that night. Remember the question you asked Debbie when we were talking about uh, that he is able not to sin and not able to sin? And I remember you, you brought out a very good point when you said Saying it that way, not able to sin, sounds wrong. Something to be out of effect. And you were right. There's a way of saying it. And it's hard to say what we're trying to say there that it was impossible that Jesus Christ could sin. But you can say it in such a way that sounds like it was programmed in, or you can say it in such a way that it's softer, it fits the scripture. And that's the trouble we have.
1: Yeah. and the desire.
0: I don't know. Ourself, yeah. Well, we're right. Just like
1: a father, just like father would do a child, you know, I mean he's able to hurt that child, but his love for that child prevents him from doing that anymore. Yeah, it's
0: built into the uh, character of God and, and that's what we find with the lim- unlimited atonement, limited atonement issue. Um the people who are for unlimited atonement Simply are reflecting the truth of First John 2:2. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It means, and we're going to get to this next week. It means that the atonement frees up a holy God to do what He wants to in the way of pardoning to anybody. It frees Him. It's like a judge who has the uh, has somehow the legal authority to pardon. Except in Christ's case, he died for us to get that power. He can apply the pardon pretty much how he wants to, if he has the authority. Well, God now has the authority to apply the pardon wherever and however he wishes. Compatible with his character, of course. But the cross gives him that. And so in that sense, that's why the cross is for all men. It permits God to come to all men that way. And it permits you, to in your witnessing, to say, after the person understands something of the holiness of God and his responsibility to a God who is holy, after he perceives that, because if you do it too fast, it just becomes um, a premature throwing your pearls before swine. If after the person has some sense of responsibility and sin before God, then to say that a full pardon is here for you. And you can say that. And you can say that because Christ is the propitiation for that person, as well as for you, and for me, and for everybody else. Now, where Arminians went wrong, and where that, that tradition got, got a little hung up on, was they recognized correctly the necessity of faith. And frankly, a reform circle sometimes that isn't made clear. You know, the God and the Bible doesn't say hope and be saved. It doesn't say love and be saved. It doesn't say walk obediently and be saved. It says believe and be saved. There's something unique about believe and faith. So that segment of Christendom um, correctly saw that, but then they began to define it and began to alter the whole doctrine of election. So that God was really electing after man responded. So you put God in like, he's seconding the motion. I I raise my hand, I I make the motion, God seconds it. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, something's wrong there. But that something that's wrong wouldn't have happened if they had had a firm created creature distinction all along. Because if you get that distinction in mind, this creature down here, every moment, everything that he does is dependent on who? Who's sustaining the creature? The creator. So that dependency is never lost. And it softens. When I start about, talking about free will, it's, it's a, you know, gosh, you say that in some reform circles, you get crucified. Um, and it's too bad because it's true. A, that has been illegitimately used by pagan philosophers. And they're sensitive to that, and they should be. But on the other hand, there is that thing we mean by human choice. But it's creature choice, finally. And it's sustained, even in the choosing, it's sustained by the Creator. The Creator never stops being the Creator and the Sustainer. So, it's helped me in working with this. that I've, I've just noticed in my own life that the stronger I appreciate the creator-creature distinction, the easier it is for me to come to these verses without feeling like, uh-oh, that guy conflicts with that guy. So, that's just my experience. At the
1: beginning of the lecture tonight, you said that um, at the time of the Reformation, when the the reality or the revelation of justification by faith, um, you said that came out of the Reformation as a new revelation. Um, I understand the condition of the Catholic Church or the... The church at the
0: time of the Reformation, and it really deviated from Scripture. Um, but wasn't there an earlier time when that was? Oh yeah. Uh, part of it, it the was. Belief? Yeah, good question, Debbie. The question is, when I said justification was new, the Reformation. What I really meant was, it was it was mm-hmm. clarified as it hadn't been clarified before. Because obviously, no one could have believed all the way back to Abraham and beyond if they didn't, weren't justified by faith, because Paul tells us that. So, justification was operating all that time period. It's just that, it, frankly, it wasn't appreciated. And um, just like the deity of Christ wasn't appreciated. So, you read some of the church fathers in the first and second century, holy heck, I mean, they were having a problem with who Jesus was. And yet, you know that they were genuine born again. You can you know, sense that in their writings. They loved the Lord. They were just kind of fumbling around trying to understand Him. And that's what we are. We're still fumbling around trying to understand Him. But it's just that was a step forward in clarifying a truth that was going on before. Yes, George?
1: In your tapes from about three and a half years ago, when you were talking about Abraham and you were talking about the faith issue, and then you uh, got into the, the Reformation and what started between the Catholic Church and 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 you had talked about in there that what Luther and Calvin got in trouble for was because they were talking about this faith that was imputed from above mm-hmm. versus the Catholic belief that it was a grace and regeneration mm-hmm. from within, and then the righteousness spewed out from the heart. Right. Now when we are we using terms very loosely in the Christian circles when we say when we talk about amazing grace, saved by grace. Is that incorrect phraseology to say that we're saved by grace?
0: Oh no. No, that's fine.
1: Okay. So the faith that we're talking about here is what Luther was saying that the faith is our is our assurance. But the the regeneration is the salvation
0: portion. Oh, you're talking about how, the sequence in which they happen?
1: I guess I guess the sequence and the function.
0: Okay, they're different words and they have different emphases, but if you ask me which comes first, that you're going to make, Um guys have debated about that one too. It happens in such a microsecond, okay. you know, that it's hard to separate it. But but the point I was making back in the Abraham issue was because I wanted to clarify this righteousness, this righteousness issue. Where is this righteousness coming from? And Rome, true to its position, insisted that the Protestants were wrong in talking endlessly about this substitutionary death that generated this righteousness that wasn't ours. They said, "How can you take a righteousness that you don't you don't possess? It's Christ, not George's; it's Christ, not Charles's." And this this other righteousness off here—it's not George's, not Charles's—and yet George and Charles enjoy this righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness, and so they, this this didn't set with them, and they wanted to say. You, you come to God because of gr- what grace works in your heart. The righteous fruit that comes in. The righteous fruit is clearly George's righteous fruit. It's clearly Charles's righteous fruit. In the sense, well, it's not, it's not... They're willing to grant that it's Holy Spirit motivated. They're not saying it's energy of the flesh. But they have to so identify the righteousness is coming from the individual rather than being legally transferred from Christ. They they saw that as a tremendous threat. You have to see. And see, why I'm saying this over and over, that they feel threatened by that. Because the conclusion might be that George would say, well, it's not my rights; it's Christ, so I, I can sit here and do what I want. And why I'm saying this... Then, and why I'm saying it tonight, is because you'll see the same thing happening in our own evangelical circles right now. We deal in a, in a godless generation. We have flake-outs all over the church. And the diagnosis that's being promulgated in our own evangelical circles by certain teachers is that basically a wrong, Namely, that if you preach... That when, if you witness to your neighbor and your neighbor trusts the Lord and you've told your neighbor that Christ died for him and he sits there and he believes uh, upon your witness that Christ died for him and he's perfectly justified what control do you have on how he's going to live? Can't he take what you just told him and go out and live any way he wants to? Well, now there's an answer to that. and And... I don't know why the Protestant Reformers didn't come up with this answer. The answer is, first of all, is there false faith? We all agree, yeah, there can be false faith. But what is the nature of false faith? Isn't it rather that they never perceived what Christ did for them rightly and correctly anyway? In other words, they were never born again in the first place. We agree to that. That's a false faith. But it's false not because... um, It's not because they didn't try. It's because they didn't perceive. I mean, I've, I've met people, for example, let me give a case. I've met people who had the most agonizing apparent conversion you can imagine. Tears, emotions, the whole nine yards. Vowed great things for God, and three and a half years later, there's not a sign of it in their life, and it's a disaster. Now, am I can I be sure that they never were born again? No, I can't be. I can't be sure. I'm only an external observer. The Holy Spirit knows. And you've all been, you know, you know these kinds of things. But my point is, if it turns out they never believed, it was because at that point, when they you know, we thought they believed, they never really understood the gospel. That's the problem. It was a lack of a response in their heart to illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. In contrast to saying, well, now, they really understood the issue and just they didn't dedicate their life to Christ. They didn't vow great things for Jesus. They didn't come uh, vowing that they would do this and they would do that for the Lord. No, that's not what he asks us to do. He says, come and drink of the waters freely. So, there's a subtlety at the point of witnessing, at the point of, of a person trusting the Lord. It's the overwhelming truth dawning in our hearts and us trusting in the Lord at that point. We come to Him with empty hands. You know, the God that calls Adam and Eve out of the bushes isn't impressed because, oh, we're seeking your, we're seeking your God. I mean, gee, we looked all over the garden for you. No, you didn't. You were hiding behind the bushes. What are you trying to kid? The only reason why you got saved is because I called for you. And, see, it's the power of that initial transaction. And, yes, once we trust the Lord at a point in time, once the Holy Spirit illuminates our heart, can we turn away? We can try. Can we do a pretty good job of it? Didn't the Corinthians? Didn't some of those people at the tail end of all the gospel so and so has denied the faith and's given me a hard time and everybody's abandoned me and you know you know all the New Testament references, yeah it was all over the first century church. Did Paul go up and say, "Are you real believers?" Or rather, did he say, "I turn such and such over one to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme." Wasn't that the way the apostles handled the problem? Wasn't that the threat that we read in communion service in 1 Corinthians 11? Yeah, the church had discipline. But they never disciplined you out of your salvation. And there's the difference. And you can't hold to the Calvin's original concept, which I think is the Scriptures, that when I believe, that is assurance that Christ has died for me. And why else would you believe? If, if you perceive that God is holy and is righteous, why are you going to keep looking at Him unless you're assured you're going to be forgiven? Doesn't the light blind you? Doesn't the light so terrible, so hot, so intense that it would turn us from Him if we didn't know that He is, he is shining in our life through the cross of Christ to bless us?
1: So what was the... When you were talking about behavior of, of, of uh, negative one zero and positive one where forgiveness got you to zero
0: imputed righteousness got you to plus one